Welcome along to Season 4 of Out to Lunch, the podcast which brings you the hottest conversations with the most interesting people. If you haven't joined us before, where have you been? Normally, I take my guests out to a cracking restaurant, order a ton of good food and ask them the most politely prying questions possible. The point is that people really tell you stuff over a good meal and I should know I've been the Observer's restaurant critic for over 20 years. Just saying. Since COVID, we've also been doing some in for lunches. My guest and I hook up over video link and I have great takeaways delivered to both our doors. And today we have one of those. I'm on the line from London to Malibu to eat with the Academy Award nominee, Goodwill Hunting and Big Night star, Minnie Driver. I didn't go back to England for two years after that. And I had three pairs of jeans, four T-shirts, no bras and five pairs of knickers. (laughs) Hello, how lovely to meet you. Uh, it's well, very nice to meet you. And thank you very much for agreeing to have, well, we're, we're having different meals. You're having lunch and I'm having dinner. You're having dinner. I know, it's very, well, you're lucky to find anyone in LA who eats at all. I know, I was absolutely staggered, let alone put in <laughs> a quite, you know, a quite substantial order and express regret that there was there was no dessert on the menu. There's no, there's no pudding at lunchtime. <laughs> Your food should be delivered at 1230 the doorbell will go it might have turned up already it actually it it actually arrived two minutes before it's sitting on the kitchen table in a bag I didn't unpack it so I I thought I'd wait and do that well I I think I think it's good to have a reveal isn't it so you (laughs) you asked for a delivery from Malibu Farm um, which is run by a former Swedish model oh it's so beautifully LA yeah model doesn't get a very good rap does it she's (laughs) She's a no. very. I mean, I, she's I'm just a, stating that's what's on her we, on the website. I know she's so bright and she's the most brilliant businesswoman. What, how it all began was she would do these dinners that you could either pay for or they would be invited outside on the property, and they would just use everything that she grew there. And then th- there was this abandoned. It was a bait and tackle shop. And then it was a really crappy diner at the end of the pier in Malibu. She turned it into this amazing cafe and it was no reservation, just walk in. And it used to be everything that they grew on the farm was what was served in the restaurant. Now, because it's just done so incredibly well, largely because there isn't really anywhere lovely to eat in Malibu. I'm not kidding. There's... There's fast food restaurants and sort of sandwiches, and then there's Nobu. There is no middle class of restaurants. It's absurd. The the really interesting thing is when I heard uh, Millie lives in Malibu, I thought, fine, because I spent quite a lot of time in LA. It's not the bit of Malibu I was necessarily expecting, if I'm totally honest. No, I live in a a, a mobile home park. It's absolutely magic. I'm an, an avid surfer and have been for a long time. And I, I bought this place as a surf shack, really, to be able to just come and be by the ocean. Do you have another place up in the hills? Do you have a place? I do. In I have a house. Studio? Yes. Yeah. Yes. When lockdown happened, did you decide yeah. to come and live here? Yeah, we wanted home? to be by the sea. It reminds me of Cornwall. I think that's why I love it here so much. It reminds me of the sort of the places in Cornwall that we used to so go to. So you're as basically kids. in Padstow. I'm of basically Los in, I'm basically in Padstow, but without Paul Ainsworth and you know Tom Aiken taking me to Paul Ainsworth and Rick Stein and any actually extraordinarily delicious food. Now listen, my food has just arrived, so Great. you can get yours from the kitchen table. I'll get mine from the front door, and I'll meet you back in a couple of minutes. Okay, brilliant. Now, you have ordered, because people will be interested, cauliflower pizza. I didn't yes. know there was such a thing as cauliflower pizza, but I'll believe you. Um, a chicken tortilla salad, fish tacos, and a mustard chicken sandwich. Is that right? Yeah. 
the pizza base is made of cauliflower. And I am not gluten intolerant in any way, shape or form, but I'm extraordinarily tolerant of this pizza because it is so good. As you went to Malibu Farm, yeah. I thought I should try and find something uh, like that. I live in Brixton um, oh, yeah. and found a place called Lottie's Farmhouse. Uh, oh, nice. in, in Clapham, which I think it's fair to say is a total fiction because I'm sure you know Clapham and it's it's short on farms. <laughs> it's it's not got an enormous <laughs> number of farms, but I like the style. It's grilled chicken with piri-piri and, and rustic salads and that sort oh, of seemed nice. to match exactly what, what you're doing. Look how delicious that cauliflower pizza is. They've actually, what they do is they shred the cauliflower and they make it into a meal, yeah. which they then fry... And then they put all sorts of delicious stuff that they grow in their garden on top of it, the tomatoes, the cheese so that they it, make. It's the almost arugula. like a cauliflower roasty. Yes, that's exactly right. It's a cauliflower roasty, that's it. Oh, I'm going to try that. That's really very good. good. You've been living in LA for a, how many years? Over 15, isn't it? 20, yeah. How native have you gone? I was always a very outdoorsy person. So the California lifestyle suited me perfectly being an actress you know with a healthy appetite it's just as well that I do lots of exercise I mean I'm in the middle of shooting a film right now and I'm actually quite worried I'm not going to fit back into the corset when we pick up shooting again whenever that is because you are playing Queen Beatrice in Cinderella are you not? <laughs> yes I am I mean she's going to be a more portly royal than she was to begin with but it does have to be said that LA if you are British, it is kind of a, a, a curious place. Oh, it is. It's definitely a curious place. But I'm not scared of finding an underbelly. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's sure. what LA requires. It requires you to find the other interesting folk who have flocked here for myriad reasons. I, I've spent you know. a, um, a, a good deal of time there in 2009 working on a show called Top Chef masters yeah. yeah you don't find the interesting food necessarily in westwood or bel-air or at, whatever at all you don't you, you, you don't have find to go into the many many ethnic yeah. communities yes to tokyo little tokyo and on npr they had a brilliant show with the los angeles times food critic and he would just basically tell you places jonathan gold yeah the, the great jonathan gold he yeah. really was amazing. And he'd say, you know, there's a there's a little strip mall down in Altadena that serves the best dim sum I've ever had yeah. in my life. Go there. And like you you'd go there. The last Korean barbecue place, which actually does charcoal, um, called Soup Bowl Jeep down in I don't know if you've been there, and it's a very cross Korean ladies of a certain age, the, the 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 waiters, and they look at you as though you're an idiot, which you probably are. And <gasps> I quite like being mistreated in, in restaurants. I like being mistreated in the way that if I go to Jen Sushi in downtown LA and order a, like a spicy tuna roll, how they'll basically throw a fish at you and be like, you know, there's just row on the menu today. That's all you're having, row 20 different ways. Let's go all the way back. I'm intrigued, as a lot of people are, about your, your childhood. You've talked a lot about the fact that your late father uh, was not married to your mum. Well, there's nothing yeah. unusual about that, but he was actually married to somebody else at the time, and that is slightly more unusual. Yes, that but, was a bit unusual. I mean, she did know about his relationship with my mother. Uh, it was fairly unconventional, but I would say that that unconventionality was supplanted with a great deal of love and now, having been through a few messy relationships, I know that 
I know not to bloody judge. The older we get, the more we see our, our own parents as exactly human beings who live their exactly own lives. fallible. Um, exactly. It was partly in Barbados and partly in the sexy environs of Maribone. Is that right? <laughs> my mother moved to the countryside when they split up. My dad lived, yeah, between um, London and Barbados, and I spent a lot of time in both those places. I went to Beedales. I went to school down in Hampshire. Was Beedales essentially a finishing school in how to skin up and get laid by the ponds? I mean, I have to say categorically not. My experience was was only of how it, it, it spoke to the best parts of people. And it wasn't children running around not having any responsibility. It rather taught you how to be part of a community, which I wish that was taught in more schools. It's where my acting began in the English department, the inspiration and the, the book list that they gave me when I left, I, I still have. What was your first big part? Well, I would say my first big part was Glinda in the musical of The Wizard of Oz, which they let me perform on roller skates in a white <laughs> jumpsuit. It was, a, it was a triumph, actually. Did you immediately know that you were going to go straight from there to drama school? You went to Weber Douglas. The reality is it was just something to keep me off the streets because I was 17, almost 18 when I went to drama school. You need to be somewhere. But I just desperately wanted to go and do plays and be in the theatre and be on stage. And when I left school, I was the only kid to, to, to actually graduate from my, my class at drama school without an agent. I was really like the dud. <laughs> Your parents, were they both very supportive of that? There was no resistance whatsoever. There was, I think, a very wry response from both of them in that I think they thought I was going to be doing a lot of waitressing, which I would have done more waitressing if I didn't get fired from waitressing jobs. Where, where did you get fired from? I used to work at this restaurant called Vodka in Kensington Gore. There were probably... 16 different types of vodka and they were kept in this giant freezer behind the bar and they were encrusted in ice and the only way you could if somebody ordered a zubrodka the only way that you could tell what what it was was to duck down and like have a swig and if you were lucky you found the zubrodka like five in before you were absolutely twatted if people ordered wine my dad knew a lot about wine he taught me a bit yeah. about wine and i'd constantly be contradicting the people about the wine that they'd ordered. And I'd be like, no, that's awful. You don't want that. That's absolutely swell. Anyway, oh, I got God. fired from that. But I did, you know, then I started singing in jazz clubs because I had to get a job. So, And that really taught me to sing properly in front of people because nobody <laughs> listens when you're, when they're I, eating dinner and singing. And this and is singing. the thing. I mean, obviously you've released three albums in your own name, but you, your involvement in music was very serious as well. Your, your band was signed to Ireland and you were going places it was really throwing mud at the wall and seeing what stuck first and if the music the music looked like it was taking off quicker than the acting and it was all very exciting but it went south as almost as quickly as it was on the rise and I felt like I was back to square one with no record deal and no prospects and I very fortuitously met Pat O'Connor who was directing this film Circle of Friends and he encouraged me to eat more and put on some weight and, you know, be in this film. To remind people, it's a story about friends in rural Ireland mm -hmm. um, coming of age, you playing 
a very uncommon girl in it anyway, and having a night in the cinema with Alan Cummings. Yes. Um, <laughs> giving amazing performance. He was um, brilliant. Was it a positive experience, that first experience of a big film? I used to keep a, a diary quite faithfully, and I read back over it a few years ago. And it's really extraordinary, the, the realisation of your dream sort of unfolding in front of you. Um, we had the best time on that on that film. Because you also had a role in what in the food world is one of the most important films of the past quarter of a century, which is Big Night. Yeah. Um, Stanley Tucci was a brilliant guest in the first series of this. Was that one of the early ones for you? I made Circle of Friends and then I was unemployed for a year and then I had a very small part in GoldenEye. And then as Circle of Friends was coming out, I was sent on a weekend to New York by my then agent who bought me a ticket and said, you should go and meet some casting directors. And I was with one of these casting directors and there was a big fight going on in the office next door. You could hear these two chaps yelling at each other. And the casting director said, oh, excuse me, I just need to go and shut them up. And she came back 10 minutes later and she said, "Um, will you come and meet these directors? And... I said, okay. And I went next door and Campbell Scott and Stanley Tucci, they were two days away from starting shooting and the actress who was meant to be in their film had just dropped out. And so I had a chat with them and I, I have no idea why they cast me. You know, I was demonstrably British, very young, completely inexperienced, but quite jolly. They signed me up in the room. It was amazing. And I never went back. You didn't get the return flight back? I didn't, no. I stayed living in New York. I I didn't go back to England for two years after that. And I had three (laughs) pairs of jeans, four T-shirts, no bras and five pairs of knickers. Uh, (laughs) I mean, the number of things that should be said. One, you you could pass as Italian, so Italian-American within (laughs) that community. It's never really clear where Big Night is set. For anybody who hasn't seen it, you must see it. It's the story of two Italian brothers trying to run a failing restaurant. I think that's... uh, it's uh, a brilliant, and, waiting, and Ian Holm is yeah waiting it, for Louis Prima to turn up. Just yes, it's a magnificent. It's like there is there's a kind of waiting for God. There's a Beckett aspect. It's food. It's so funny. Isabella uh, Rossellini is just completely incandescent in it. That's a hell of a thing, isn't it? This yeah. is your first role, and you're on set with Ian Holm and Isabella Rossellini. Did you have moments on that set where you're thinking, Christ, what am I doing here? Or did you think this is where I want to be? Maybe it's like finding yourself in a kitchen when you're beginning out and all you want to do is food. All I wanted to do was act. All I wanted to do was be around people who acted. I love film sets right off the bat. So I didn't have an imposter syndrome, but I definitely had, I was kind of owl-like. Like I sat and watched everything from the gaffers rigging to Isabella used to do, she did her own hair and makeup and I'd get there, you know, I wouldn't get be called until seven o'clock in the morning and she'd be there at 5.30 and I'd go and sit and watch her do her makeup and she'd tell me stories about Italy and her life. I would have slept there if I could have because I was 24 or five. I just felt like I was in the right place. It was that feeling of belonging. I loved it. I loved all of it. When Goodwill Hunting came along, we don't worry, we'll get on to modern stuff. It's just, I, I like to see some of this. <laughs> so, okay. In case you're going, Christ alive, I was just talking British hits. Um, <laughs> in that one, in that one, you're actually British. Was that all, was it always yeah. written as British? No, um, no, it wasn't. It was, that was very much Gus Van Sant. He is probably the most wonderful director that 
I worked with in terms of his complete and utter devotion to what it is he's working with. And for him, me having my natural accent meant that there was one less barrier between between this character and the truth of what she was saying, I imagine. So he just liked the naturalness of it. An extraordinary situation because the script had been written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck pretty much while they were still at university, wasn't it? Yeah, Um, yeah. Had they given Gus Van Sant complete control of what happened? Did they have any objection to you being British? They loved Gus and completely and utterly supported his input and what he felt. And I, I... I think it's a great credit to to both Matt and Ben and Gus that they were like, we just want what's going to be best for the whole thing rather than being stroppy about, we wrote it this way. They were extraordinarily flexible for, for, for writers and particularly for very young writers. I mean, they weren't wrong. It was a huge success. It was a huge success for you, all the award nominations yeah. and everything. How did you cope? Was it all right? Oh, I didn't. No, it was awful. I'll never forget the night of the Academy Awards because I was actually with my dad who's since gone and I was with my mum and my sister and it was I can only describe it it's like walking into the what I imagine walking into the Roman Colosseum with just the these shrieking hordes and utterly overwhelming and terrifying but I had my dad there with me who leant over right before as they were reading out the nominations for for my category yeah Yeah, dad was like he leant over and he's like you do know you're not going to win darling don't you and I was like (laughs) I was like what? And then they, they read out, they read out Kim Basinger's name. Um, and he was like, see, it's all right, isn't it? It's fine. And better that I told you beforehand. I mean, it was hilarious. But no, being, listen, being vaulted into a, into a very particular spotlight, I wish I could have enjoyed it more. It is extraordinarily overwhelming. And people don't have much sympathy for actors saying getting famous is overwhelming because they're too busy thinking that you've got tons of money and free stuff and... I don't know what they they think that your life is a sort of permanent red carpet, but you know, any relatively normal human being, it it is extraordinarily overwhelming to be put into a very specific spotlight and to be asked what you think about stuff all the time when, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know much about anything. I just was happy to be working really. One of the classic things about, LA in the film and TV. I mean, I know the TV side a, a bit, which is that you take meetings and everybody will tell you everything's brilliant. You're fantastic. And oh, yeah. Be, so exciting. Did you fall for the bullshit? Well, it's not even bullshit. It's just the way the industry works there. I don't really don't do the regret thing at all, but there are a few choices I made during that time that I bitterly regret because of the overwhelmment that you speak about. You don't have a clear head. I was so far away from home. I think I could have made better choices if I'd had a moment to kind of catch my breath, but everything moves at such a fast pace. And you're right. Sure. You're being yesed into the middle of nowhere. Everything is a brilliant idea. When of course everything isn't a brilliant mm. idea. <laughs> you need people to go, no, that's a crap idea. Don't do that. Just go on holiday for a minute, like eat something, have a break, make a decision an informed decision when you've, everything's calmed down a little bit, but it's like a tidal wave, you know, and you, Mm. rather get swept along with it. Was that partly down to lack of support network around you? Under the advisement of people that I thought knew what they were talking about, I jettisoned the lovely people that had been around me, representing me and supporting me, and I kind of went with the big, shiny... Oh, right, okay. It was a terrible mistake, but you learn a lot from making terrible mistakes, and I, I never did that again. 
it taught me to value the kindness and the loyalty of, of people and to not throw those things over for something that appears to be bigger and shinier and more powerful. The, the industry that you're in, there's two sides of it. There's the, the public profile and then there's the work, which yes. can be absolutely grinding, getting up yes. at ridiculous hours of the morning, driving to the Fox lot or... And then working for 18 hours. And people don't quite understand that dichotomy, do they? That obviously there has to be a sheen and a presentation to the world because that's the PR, but actually the work itself... It's deeply unglamorous. I mean, if you like it, which I do, it's very satisfying. Mostly you're inside a soundstage in the pitch black with hot lights, plying your craft, having a laugh, and then you're sitting in Winnebago waiting for them to relight another scene, learning lines... There's something monotonous and uncreative about the kind of form. And what's interesting is is getting into the creativity within all of that boring waiting around. I've always loved that. So are you hanging out with the with the crew more than the actors? I've often been asked to move along when I find uh, people shooting on streets, either in London or in New York or in L.A., because the minute I see a cable or, and someone with a headset on who's clearly a PA, I get terribly excited and want to be part of it and I'll sort of start standing around and seeing if there's anyone I know and I've really been asked to move on from at least four or five sometimes a member of the crew will be like oh yeah no hi Mindy I know she's all right <laughs> she's one of us she's one of us she's it's okay also from something else How Did We Get Here? with Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you're one of those people who spends hours in the kitchen knocking out culinary masterpieces, you'll want to be properly dressed for it. I know I do. Or perhaps you just want to convince your friends you're that sort of person without going to all the trouble of actually cooking. Well, now you can. How, you ask? By wearing the terrific official Logotastic out-to-lunch apron, of course, in gorgeous durable denim. It's so good, you'll want to go out in it. And if you do go out, let's face it, it's tough out there, so take your favourite podcast with you in the sturdy out-to-lunch travel cup, the perfect receptacle for your hot beverage of choice. See, not only will our lunch lubricated chats warm your ears, we'll also warm the rest of you. And when you get home and you've washed your out-to-lunch travel cup, try it with the out-to-lunch tea towel. So soft, you'll be snuggling up with it at bedtime. To see the range of merch and catch them all, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com. That's outtolunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. Want to spend even more time with me? The paperback of my latest book, My Last Supper, is out now. Join me as I explore the landscape of our last meals on Earth, available from all good bookshops and a few bad ones too. But for now, let's go back out to lunch. Hey! 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. One of the most recent things is Speechless. Oh, yeah. It seems amazing given that it's really quite recent, but it was groundbreaking because it's about the, the absolutely aggressive mother of a kid with cerebral palsy yeah. um, who is played by a kid with cerebral palsy brilliantly. Yeah, he is um, brilliant. And the struggle for the whole family to maintain themselves. Did that come to you as a, a script for pilot season which had just been knocking around or were you involved? What was it? It had been around and no one, I think, had wanted to do it because she wasn't a very likeable character. My agent, who is a great friend of mine, said, he's like, oh, she's a bit of a difficult cow. You'll love her. <laughs> and I was like, hang on. It was so wonderful. It was so wonderful to see a teenager, regardless of his disability, he was just, he was just a regular, annoying, horny bad-tempered or great-tempered teenager. And there was a level of typicalness about this family. They didn't have any money. They wanted to do everything for their kids that they could. They had a kid with particular disabilities, and it was screamingly funny. And I wanted to be part of something that I knew was a high degree of difficulty to get right. You you play that as British. Um, yes, we did actually end up shooting in England in our third season, and John Cleese played my dad. It struck me as a, just a beautifully touching drama, which was also very funny. Yes, I think that's I think it's exactly right. And to to do something on network television in America that actually moves the needle on a, a social conversation that people find difficult to have. Like people don't know how to speak about disability. They don't know how to to, to greet someone who uses a wheelchair in the, in the street. There's this awkwardness and. What the show did, I felt, was give voice to a community that just, it, it's, it's only ever portrayed as like the sort of terrible doom and gloom, awful experience, when in actual fact, it is, it is people having, just living their lives within, under a different set of circumstances. And very, very good it is too. And still highly regarded by a lot of, you know, it, it's one of those things people talk about and then pull their hair out about it being cancelled. I was devastated when Speeches was cancelled, largely because I felt like this conversation is being cancelled, like on television, and there wasn't anything else like it. Three solid series, and still available, in case you want to watch it, on yeah, Amazon Prime. it is. Now, sort of looking back over the whole spread, you've done a lot of your adulthood in LA. Yeah. Once you have any profile... One of the things I noticed when I worked there was I suddenly realised all those billboards along Sunset Boulevard and yes. whatever, they're not actually there to advertise films at all. They're just there to freak out the competition. The success. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, 
they're there to tell other actors the parts they haven't got That's and who's exactly got a big right. film coming up. That is exactly right. Driving down Sunset when you're unemployed, it's like you properly need a giant drink at the end of it. Like, it's awful. It's just showing you every script that you read that you didn't get cast in or every every job that you didn't... Yeah, it's ridiculous. This is why I like to live out in Malibu and I'm in a community that, while it has been invaded by Hollywood types of late, it's very much a sort of surf community. You've gone through the cauliflower pizza. Um... It's delicious. What else did you get yourself? She does the most delicious chicken tortilla salad with homemade tortillas and then the crispiest chicken on top with cotilla cheese, which is, and greens. And all of these lovely greens were grown on the farm, which I love. And the chicken has been really properly cooked. This is completely random, not entirely random, but when they, the big fires hit not long ago, was your property at any point in danger or did it oh my, stop short? Oh, my God, yes. Our community was saved quite literally by 10 men and one of their sons who was 15. The fire department was so overstretched because everything was burning. We've got a couple of retired firemen who live in our community. And I think that when you retire as a fireman here, you get given a hose that like as part of your golden <laughs> handshake. Okay. So we've got this utility center that has some of these hoses. So what the guys did was they went and they got the hoses. They flagged down a fire engine who opened the hydrants. And these 10 guys and this kid fought the fire for 38 hours. And they saved, when you, when you look at the burn, we, we are this little tiny sea of, of, of remaining green in what was a blackened area. And you were there or were you in your I was other place at, back in LA? It was on Friday, November the 9th. I was at Fox shooting the show and someone texted me and said, are you out? The fire is, is really close. I was like, it can't be that close. It wasn't, you know, I checked in this morning, the wind had changed. She sent me a video. She was my neighbor and the fire was literally 300 feet from our community. And I was like, well, that's it. We're done. But these guys... They really were genuinely heroic. It was extraordinary what they did. And, uh, and for, we're all incredibly grateful to them. No, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. Well, that is, that is one of the realities of, yeah. of, where you, of where you live. It almost feels at times like the desert is trying to reclaim it. 100%. Between the earthquake and the fires, um, I don't know why. What are you doing there, Minnie? What are you doing? There, like, what are you no, doing? I'm, I'm back. I'm going to find a nice place in Padstow. So tell me about your relationship with Padstow and Paul uh, Ainsworth at number six. And also Prawn on the Lawn in Padstow, which is <laughs> Oh, just, you really do know your stuff. Yeah. Oh, my God, it's so delicious. We've been staying over the estuary in Rock for many, many years as a family. Um, my sister has been renting a house down there for years and I rent one down there too. And now we've all got children. It's That is my summer holiday, my summer holiday. And we've been going there for so long and, you know, bangers on the beach. And last summer, Tom Aitken and his lovely wife, Justine, were with us. And by the way, I have never had a barbecue like that on the beach in Dama Bay. <laughs> It was Tom Aiken is a big name chef who's had many Michelin stars over the time over the years. He's he's not scared of a cold water swim like me. I'll swim in any degree cold water, and I love him for that as well as like the kind of sides of meat he has in the back of his Range Rover. <laughs> he took us to the most incredible tasting at Number Six in Padstow, and 
it was one of those blissful experiences that again i was like this is extraordinarily special this is this does not happen every day do you do you sometimes stick out like a sore thumb in la given you know yeah, the gluten, totally. The, the, the... 100%. Do you like that? I felt like I was an alien for such a long time. I'm very used to it. I didn't mean to move to America. I didn't mean to leave England, which will always have my heart. But I love America because of what it has afforded somebody who like me who just wanted to show up and have a go um, and see if it worked out. And I, I sort of just kept following that dream. There was never any great plan designed to move to Hollywood. If I hadn't found this place at the beach, I think I would have come back to England. This place changed my experience of um, Los Angeles. How long ago did you get it? Literally 20 years. It was, it was well, very the, the shortly place, after. The place you're in now? Yeah, because it was just a trailer park and I could, have, I could afford it. Like it was nothing. It was just this little, this beautiful little tiny cottage, but a mobile home, you know, but it affords a, a sense of community um, for me and certainly for my son that I felt was missing in LA. Is there anything you actually miss? Is there anything that you think to yourself, God, it's February and 80 degrees, or does that never occur to you? No, it always occurs to me, always. And I mean, but, you know, before the, the lockdown, like I, I come back all the time enough to, to satiate that need to to go, to walk out of, usually it's my sister's house where I'm saying, to walk down the Portobello Road, to go up the Goldbourne Road, to get a custard tart, um, at Lisboa to come, but to, to look at the antiques, to be in London, for it to start to rain, to duck into a pub. I miss that very much. In Los Angeles, you have to drive everywhere. It's destination, everything. But it's just different, you know. You had this start of music, and since then you've released three albums, two mm. of original compositions, one of covers. Mm. It's still clearly a very important part of your life. Yes, it is. It is. I will never not consider myself a musician sort of before everything because it's how my brain works. And my son, I put a piano instead of a telly in his room. He wanted a telly and I put a, a piano in there. It's brilliant because he plays it every single day and he started oh, writing. He? Yeah. It's a Yamaha keyboard, but it's got 88 keys and they're weighted. So it's proper. He started writing and it's brilliant. And I go in there and sing with him and I'm constantly writing songs. I'll, I'll probably make another record at, at some point, but my, my barometer about what being successful is has really changed as I've, as I've gotten older in the business in terms of it doesn't all have to be for public consumption. You can do things that you absolutely love and, and not need to tell everybody. And sometimes you want to tell everybody. There's no career structure, really. No, it's, no none. Did I get a job? Exactly. Have I got another job? Uh, have it's I got a, a job after this? Is anybody interested in me? That's and that's exactly that's exactly it. There's there is no arrival point at which you all sort of suddenly gain entry to a room where they're like, you know, well done. Yeah. Here's yeah. a medal. Good luck. You've done it. I was complaining to my mother a few months ago about the hustle and how much I loathe still having to hustle as hard as I do to get work and to get things going. And she's 83 and she just started a new business. So she went, she went. Oh, I love the hustle. The hustle, <laughs> the hustle's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Oh, I love it. I love the grind. And I was like, I don't think you know what that means. But yeah, <laughs> you have to look at it differently. It's never come easy for me. I've had to work really hard for all the stuff that I've done. And I now don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's good. It means that you have to stay engaged with the stuff that you want. You have to keep identifying what your preference is and what it is if you're going to be, you know, regurgitating artistic, 
offerings out into the world, you better be damn sure that you like them and that you are sure of what it is you want to contribute. So you say, you know, there is no arrival, there is no room. Are there moments when you thought, I've arrived, even if it was a fiction? Of course, like walking into the Academy Awards with my dad holding my hand and I think my parents actually realising the scope of what I'd been doing in America for these few years, it was, it was a magnificent moment. It was incredible. But I would also say that not having five husbands, being addicted to anything in particular and having a really nice child, I would say that that is the greatest monument <laughs> to success. Uh, and the fact that I can have a conversation with you and not be hammered at one nineteen on a Wednesday when we're we're still currently locked down. You say you're not having had five husbands. Having relationships in LA in your business seems nuts. Yeah, it's impossible. A yeah. famous quote that apparently you drove down Sunset, looked up at a billboard, and I think either you or your sister yeah, said, no, my sister. Yeah. Your sister said, you shagged the whole billboard. Actually, to be fair, she said, we have shagged that whole billboard because there were, there were three actors on it. And oh, right. Okay. It was I a group heard, effort. So, and we did chuckle. But yeah, I mean, if you've not been married, I mean, much as the Daily Mail would love to, they've tried to marry me off a few times. I wore a ring on the wrong finger with my boyfriend last year and oh, was dear. engaged by the next day. And then also being totally slagged off for not wearing my ring to Pilates the following day. Oh. But I've never, I've never been married. I had a lot of boyfriends. It was really fun. It's great. Well, I, nobody I, should have to apologise for any of that. No, God, no. It's all been lovely and it all leads you, you know, if you've enjoyed it, I think it's wonderful. My business, I don't know how anyone maintains a relationship when they're young in the film business because you are never in one place for very long. You can't really show up for your partner in a way that they deserve to be shown up for. And also if they're doing the same thing that you do, there's a, there's a horrible sort of rivalry. But so, also film sets and TV sets are very intense places, aren't they? Hugely. There's reasons why people cop off with each other on film sets. Yes, definitely. It is a completely constructed reality. You've quite literally got your dialogue written for you. It's a very strange and unnatural environment when the premium is something that is extremely natural and real. It's, it's, it's very weird. Projects of your own. I mean, it's, the, it's the, the cliche for LA, isn't it? But what I really want to do is direct. Have you been hustling over the years to, to see those realised? I have a production company. I have a, an overall deal at 20th Century Fox Television. And so I have a company called Huge Fan, it's the most disingenuous thing people say in Hollywood. Huge and fan. Always, they huge go, fan. oh, hi, I'm Minnie I'm a huge fan, huge fan. But then people come up to you in the street and they're like, oh, my name's Marsha and I'm from Illinois and I'm a huge fan of your work. And like, they really mean it. So Huge Fan Productions is, we have an awful lot on our slate, actually. Um, I have a project in development to FX and I have something in development with one of the most wonderful Irish writers and comedians called Maeve Higgins. And if you haven't read her book, oh, Maeve in America. So I, I She's a very the, good friend of my friend John Ronson. Oh, so I'm I'm a good friend of John Ronson's. Are you? <laughs> that, <laughs> From you the see, old I, days, way back in the day. But you could please give him a huge hug when you're allowed to. I, I will. So he and I have known each other since we were 12. Oh, stop it. I love John Ronson. He's yeah, brilliant. He's very, he's very clever. Um, and so you're you're adapting Maeve's. So book. I'm adapting Maeve's book. There's lots of things actually. I'm in I'm in business with uh, Ben Stiller's company. We're developing a, pro a project together that I'll probably be in. There's lots of stuff. Of what I've realised at this point is that you work so hard and so many hours as an actor. For me, there's absolutely no point in not producing if you are able and if you had a good education and you have taste. At you know, I'm 50 now, so it's like I've I've 
I've read a lot at this point. You, you don't I, look a day of 49. Thank the, you very um, <laughs> much, Jay. Cheeky son. I, I, I have this little fantasy. So you've been doing a lot of cooking during yes. lockdown. And you've said there's lots of Hollywood ties. Do you all gather in each other's houses to cook? Or are you actually all there because you don't want to be near each other? We have been doing cooking together. A great friend of mine is a director called Rupert Sanders and he and his, his girlfriend, they are brilliant cooks. And there's some other friends of ours called Jamie and David who are also in Hollywood and they are extraordinary cooks. And what Jamie Kantrowitz, our friend, turned us on to is that during lockdown, all of these restaurant suppliers, particularly this extraordinary fish wow. supplier called Lux, they didn't have anywhere to sell their food. So we would put in orders for honestly, it's the most delicious fish I've ever eaten in my life. From tiger prawns that my friend Tanaz, who's a Persian filmmaker, she brought over. And it was the most delicious lunch ever to the, to the tuna tostadas that, uh, that my friend Jamie made with this sushi grade tuna that had just come in. I mean, it's, we've made ceviche. We've, it's all from the Contramar recipe book, which is, I've never been to Contramar, but and now I want to go. Yeah, it's, it's happened over here too. The whole of the hospitality sector falls out and all that top quality produce has to go somewhere. I don't know what to do now. I'm getting it. I've got to go back to the supermarket and get my fish and I'm sort of looking at it sneering going, oh, that doesn't look that oh. nice. Oh, the humanity. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, golly. Now, one of the, I, I have to ask you one other question, and this is going to sound incredibly self-serving, which is when I do these interviews, I, I go and try and look up as many, you know, previous podcasts that the guest has done. Yeah. You've done very few. I've done, I've done none. I mean, I really, I'm actually... Why did you do this one? Um, because I've, I've been reading your writing forever. And, uh, oh, okay, and I, I wondered. I miss... I miss England so much. It was a chance to talk to somebody who I've really enjoyed your writing and I knew who you were and and you're English. And I miss <laughs> I really miss England and I really love food. <laughs> so it just felt like an absolute no-brainer. <laughs> Excellent. Well that, I was just I was absolutely uh, curious as to whether and I'm very flattered that that's the reason because I'm a big fan big fan. Big fan. Big fan, huge. A big huge fan, huge fan in every way. Did Malibu Farm deliver? It was absolutely delicious. It's just it just shows it's just like the freshest the freshest produce made really well and quickly is just that's the way to eat. I have to say, I was very um, grateful to them because it does take some doing to get a takeaway from London ordered in LA. But they, <laughs> they did it. <laughs> but they did it. They so did good. it. They, they responded very, very quickly. Aww, and they, they answered the call. The it subject sounds. line was feeding mini driver. I think that's probably. <laughs> I think that's probably what did it. So all so really that remains for me to say is, Mini Drivers, thank you for staying in for lunch. Thank it's been an absolute you. delight. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for lunch. Pleasure. All right. <laughs> ah, Mini, that was delicious in all ways. And I hope it was good for you listening too. If you're near either restaurant and want to give it a try, Mini's lunch came from Malibu Farm, where the beautiful people live, and mine came from Lottie's Farmhouse in Clapham, South London, where, well, people definitely live. While you're here, don't forget to check out our range of merch. A link is in the show synopsis. And if you could take just a moment to give us a five-star review and share us, we would be so very grateful. It's what helps us keep making the show. 
Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Jemima Rathbone. The producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, I'll be back on the line to LA when I dine with The Wire and John Wick star, Lance Reddick. It's the only pilot script I've ever read in my entire career that I felt like I have to be on the show. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.